Hello and welcome to the Development Dilemma podcast, a place for the conversations we've been avoiding between expats and locals in the development space. We're here from both sides of the table to tackle development dilemmas and chart how we can do it better. Join me as we start the conversation. In this episode, I speak with Sarah Bansal, the founder and editor-in-chief of Bright Magazine, a magazine which you hear referenced frequently on this podcast, and one that told fresh, solutions-oriented stories about social change in the development space, and which I learned a lot from and would certainly highly recommend to check it out. As I admired her work and her writings, it was a real honor to have her on the podcast. And one focus of her recent writings has been on the language we use in the international development space. And that particularly interested me because there's nothing more systemic than language and thus best captures some of the underlying themes and assumptions that we make. In this episode, we focus on the language as it pertains to describing the humans involved, the approach of projects, and the impact in the development space and what all of this reveals. I hope you take something away from our discussion. Yeah. Sarka, thank you so much for joining me. It's really fantastic to have you here and to dissect yet another angle of development dilemmas with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. We might then start where jargon comes in, its role, its relevance in the international development space. Yeah, so I think it's good to just start by thinking about jargon more generally. Every profession has some jargon elements. Jargon has a useful role. I don't think it's good to ignore it or just, you know, cast jargon as something as just really bad and evil and must get rid of. Every profession has its own jargon, has its own language, and it does prove useful if you're talking to a group of peers. I think that the most important thing about jargon is that it really does differentiate who's in-group and who's out-group. So if you're a doctor and talking to a whole group of doctors and you talk about the prevalence versus incidence of the disease, they'll know exactly what the difference is between those two things. And they are different measures. Whereas to an outsider, saying prevalence or incidence is going to sound like jargon because they don't understand what it is. And for an outsider group, you would end up having to define it. And that just takes longer. So I think that jargon does prove useful for when you're talking to a group of people who are in your profession, who understand the ins and outs of what you're talking about, and who who can just go with you further faster. Just like any other profession, just like, you know, law or medicine or education or anything, uh, international development also has developed its own jargon over time. And in terms of jargon itself, Do you know where it kind of comes from? Yeah, I always love looking up the etymology of words and just understanding their history and why they are what they are. So in the case of jargon, it comes from the Old French and goes even further back to Latin. In Latin, it was to chatter. Uh, In French, it was also the idea of, of chattering or like twittering of birds. And the word jargon also led to gargon, which led to the word gargle, like, which is an unintelligible sound and not meant for humans. The first time I think that the word jargon appeared in English was in the 14th century and Ch- uh, Chaucer used it, Geoffrey Chaucer used it, uh, to talk about someone being full of jargon as a speckled magpie. So it was like, it was really just uh, likening jargon to birds. And over time, it became known um, not just as, you know, unintelligible to humans, but specifically like 
language that was used just by a small group of humans that other people couldn't understand. So I think that the important thing is that other people can't understand you when you're using jargon. Again, every profession has it, has its uses, but in the case of international development, I think does have a lot of really strong drawbacks. I should also mention that in certain fields like law and medicine, there's a very clear divide of what is jargon versus what is layman's language. And in the international development space, that line is not so clear cut. And what you instead have are words that sound like normal English words, but just have connotations that are very clear for an in-group person. Um, so I think a, a perfect word that fits that is beneficiary, which sounds like a word that, I mean, yeah, it has many syllables, but it is, <laughs> it is still kind of like a layman sort of word. But within an international development conversation or within that group, it has a very specific meaning of what you're talking about. I think the same is true for a term like expat, where it's absolutely not a jargon word, but there's a very particular kind of connotation when you think about an expat in, in an international development context. There's a there's an image that you've conjured up of who that person is. And no, it's not jargon, but it does it does have um, added meaning for people who are within that group. Okay, so within today's conversation, it might be both language and jargon that will be intertwined, but... For sure. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So maybe one place to start would be specific examples that we see in the space in terms of how we relate and describe humans involved in the space of international development. And recognizing this is picking up a few examples, it's not holistic. I know we talked about this and... The podcast, this podcast itself, in my introduction, it does mention, you know, it's expats and locals. And I wonder yeah. your thoughts on that. The word expat is really interesting and like expatriate, like, you know, you've left your country to come to another. And I think there's a connotation to that of, you know, you're doing something, number one, that it's by choice that, you know, you've decided on with your own agency that you're leaving your country to go to another. And I think the common, the modern connotation of it is that you're doing it for your benefit and maybe for that other country's benefit in some way. And I think there's a privilege element that comes in with the idea of an expat. And then would contrast that really directly with the word immigrant, which is the same kind of thing. You know, you're leaving your country to go to another. When you think of an immigrant, though, the connotation isn't so much of power and privilege and you decided to leave your country to go to another. But, you know, you're maybe you're an economic immigrant and you didn't have great opportunities in your own country and you're going to another place. Or there may have been some other types of political situations that drove you out of your country. And I think that those connotations end up coming into how we think about who is an expat versus who is an immigrant. Um, when we think of an expat, we think about someone who often is white and privileged and, you know, who comes into a country and is able to work at a higher level. And when you think of an immigrant, it's someone who just takes whatever job they can and, you know, works hard to get by and is, is, you know, using that country's resources. There's a lot of negative things that are brought into that. And I think there's a racial element as well of who we think about who becomes an expat versus who becomes an immigrant. And I think, you know, on the opposite side of when you think about like a local, especially here, we're in Nairobi, when you think about a local, I think there's often a bit of a pejorative connotation like that, oh, you're just a local. Uh, in in media, there's often the idea of the, the local journalist versus the global journalist. The idea of a local journalist is that they just know about the one place that they're based in and 
they can be relied on as a resource for that, but they're not necessarily an expert journalist who could just you know pick up and go to lots of different places. Those words end up, they end up having implications with uh, how much people are paid and how much respect are given and even how people see themselves. What I find powerful about that is because it's a term I've like, without reflection, I've used myself in terms of considering myself as an expat and clearly implicitly making a distinction then between myself and an immigrant, albeit the exact same. If you, if you take away, kind of strip away all these assumptions that we make behind it. You mentioned this distinction between local and global journalists. Yeah. And I think that also connects this notion of global citizen that we hear a lot that's kind of associated with expats. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I hate the term global citizen. Uh, I have written before that I will never use the term global citizen unless you can apply that term to a Syrian immigrant or a Syrian refugee, I should say, who left their home not by choice, but because they were forced to. And they've gone to many countries, the refugees. They've gone under great duress and great difficulty. And they have seen parts of the world that a lot of so-called global citizens haven't seen who just, you know, party on the beaches of Tulum and Bali and whatnot. And why are they not considered global citizens? Because they don't fit in a certain type of cultural milieu. I think the term global citizen, it implies in within it an element of choice and agency. And there's a certain type of person that you think about when you think of the word of the term global citizen. Yeah, I think there's also this idea of almost enlightened values mm-hmm. that we kind of call oh, you're a global citizen. And I thought what we associate with global citizen is being this like worldly aware person. But as you say, we only apply it to certain types of people uh, and experiences. And I think it's just, it's important to just reflect on it and to think about, you know, who are you excluding when you use these words? Or what are, are there certain stereotypes that you're trying to fit into when you use them and a certain type of person that you're trying to become? So yeah, again, it's not to say, I don't want to limit people from using these terms, but I do think it's important to just be intentional about it or just take a second thought before you call yourself something. If the origins of a word and the language we use changes over time to where those like myself are naive enough to not know its origins, what are the consequences you see? Like, what are the elements of the harm or the negative ideas and connotations with which it originated still carry through? There's so many words also that, you know, if you actually break them apart, you realize how racist they are, how sexist they are. One of my favorite examples is like a wife beater tank top. That's in common in the US, which is basically just a tank top with a racer back in the back. And growing up, we just always talked about like, oh, I love the look of a wife beater with jeans. And you just don't even think about the fact that you're saying wife beater. Like it's it's just so divorced from that horrible, <laughs> horrible connotation and image that comes with it. And what's really funny is that I later learned that in Australia, they're called just A shirts, which because the back, the shape of it is kind of like an A, which has it's it's so much simpler and it's it's accurate and somehow i don't know why in the u.s you still say wife beater and even though people sometimes will stop and tell themselves like why am i saying that that sounds terrible but once something becomes popular it just you you end up kind of normalizing certain ideas or they're so cemented deep within you that you just 
yeah, you just kind of like move on with life because that's just the word that everyone uses. So I found another instrument where I had a wonderful Chinese flatmate, Lan Fen, and she told me that actually the word China is a pejorative word. Like mm. It originated as a way in which it was an insult to the Chinese. It's in Mandarin, it's Zhongguo, and I butchered that, but they have a completely different word. And so there, I think that's something where you see, okay, well, I'm unfamiliar with... I'm unfamiliar, and normally there's no etymology behind that yeah. word. And yet there still is clearly a negative effect, mm-hmm. as she spoke of it, in terms of how she received the word. Yeah. So despite the fact that I may not even have those intentions behind China or using the word expat uh, versus immigrant versus local, it has an effect on the other, on the person on the other side. Yeah. So yeah, you end up saying these words and if you don't know where they're coming from and you don't know why you're saying them, it's, it's not to not say them because again, so much of language means that you just have to be understood by the person you're speaking to. And if that's the common parlance of what people are saying, then you do need to use those words sometimes. But it is important to just be aware of what you're saying. So if you're saying the word expat, just be aware of where that word is coming from and what the connotations are and how it may appear to people who are listening to it. And when it comes to the people who I consider themselves global citizens who travel in, there's also this notion of kind of do-gooder that's normally attributed to them as well. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what that implies is also that, you know, the idea of a do-gooder, I mean, in school, there's the sort of (laughs) the negative connotation of it. But I think when it comes to the like international development space, it just, it just implies that that person's intentions are altruistic, that they are there for other people's benefit. um, And that they are, that they are totally selfless and, that there's no way that they can be causing any harm because they are so pure. And I, I do feel like I see that come in in many different ways when you meet people and they just feel like they're called to a higher purpose in some sort of way. And so what's the contrast, I guess? What's the flip side of a do-gooder in, in our lexicon? I'd say the flip side of a do-gooder is then you think about the person who's being done good upon, <laughs> uh, or which is often known as like a beneficiary. And there's been a lot written about the harm of the term beneficiary within international development. Uh, I think the biggest thing is just that it implies that that person is receiving a benefit. And the person who came to do the benefit on them has, has been pure of heart and has done nothing but good and the person who's receiving the thing should feel nothing but gratitude and should just be, you know, wouldn't have gotten it otherwise. And their life was so terrible before and they had no agency of them. I, I think a lot of the international development language is, is honestly, it boils down to agency. Uh, and the idea of the, when you think of the beneficiary, you see them as a one dimensional character passively passively yeah passively just receiving a benefit and now they have been empowered and now they their life is better for it and it doesn't leave space for the negative consequences that could arise whether intentional or unintentional and doesn't leave space for that person who's the beneficiary to have a say in what they received they weren't part of necessarily the meetings that led them to 
get the well in their town or get that school, regardless of whether their their community needed a well or a school. They just have received it and they are supposed to be thankful. And it just, yeah, I think it, it just it just creates that divide. Absolutely. And when it one thing it also kind of to me touches upon is this idea that one's a giver and one's a taker. Yeah, absolutely. It's not it's it's not a co creative process. And the person who's a beneficiary has nothing of value to add themselves. They are they're just poor. And I think that it's just so it this this just all goes into also the idea of just Poor people don't have things of value. They don't have resources. Um, even if they don't have material resources, they don't have other types of, um, you know, education, or they don't have other other types of knowledge or wisdom, and they don't know themselves what they need. Which is such a ridiculous notion that, that people don't know what they need and we're the ones that have to give to them and direct that. And I, I wonder then if that's an example of harmful language. What's an equivalent we could be shifting to? And I know, I know this is difficult because even I've reflected with my organization in terms of how do you, you know, is it, is it communities? Is it citizens in some cases applicable? Otherwise, sometimes it's not relevant. Is it counterparts? What is a term that? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard. It's so easy to just talk down upon the bad language, <laughs> and then anything you come up with that's alter that's an alternative can either be really clunky or have its own problems. And there isn't a perfect word, right? And I think that that's an important thing to talk about. Like, it's 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 always so much easier to criticize than it is to come up with something good. Um, I think it really depends on what the situation is. Like, maybe sometimes they're customers, maybe sometimes they're clients or guests, or, uh, <clears throat> or sometimes they are citizens, as you said, or recipients, uh, community co-creators. I don't know. There's, there's so many different types of, of words that could be useful. I, I do think that specificity is always a good thing. And whoever is designing a program to just really reflect on what, how specific can you get um, in the language that you're using? And can you say something that just feels accurate and without judgment? And I, one good step of that might be to include exactly those people you're working with and for in that discussion of what is a term you feel appropriate for us to be, you know, for us to attach to you and what's a term to attach, to be attached to me. I think you Absolutely. can yeah, co-create yeah. Those, those, that language. It's a yeah. shared language. Yeah. Fantastic. And maybe one last thought that came to mind as we were sharing this was just, just this way in which a lot of these, and we've made it quite a contrast by saying one term and another, is creating an us versus them mentality. And not only does that create an in-group and an out-group with the consequences you mentioned, but it also just creates an artificial an artificial distance between how you think of others. And I think that limits your empathy to some degree. And it just impairs how you how much you, you feel attached and engaged. Because it's easy to dehumanize people who aren't part of your own group. And it's easy to attach extra extra humanity or just you know you can allow for mistakes of people who are part of your group because you see yourself in them and you don't see yourself in the beneficiaries necessarily you see those are the other people that 
are, are on the other side of the table who we're just trying to to serve. And there is so much emphasis in the last 10 years on just like building empathy, but there's limits to that, you know, and number one is also, you know, you can say that, oh, I have so much empathy for our beneficiaries as like, well, I have complete empathy for others. Thus I'm able to act because I am, I think it goes, goes to this idea of just like, I am this enlightened global citizen. And it's a little bit, it's a little condescending in a way I feel because you, you're never going to really fully know what it is to walk in someone's footsteps who are so different from you. Recognizing that, that your life is very different from someone else's is an important part of being a human being in the first place. And then also just recognizing that you're never really going to fully understand what that person needs in order to thrive that they're the ones who know best and what you can do at best is just be along for their journey and just let them lead their, let people lead their own lives. It's funny. So on this aspect, I think actually I use empathy slightly differently. Mm-hmm. So for me, empathy, rather than being a notion of understanding someone else, to me, it's building that empathy forces you to be humble about how much, how little you understand of someone else's perspective and their views and thus you give them the benefit of the doubt when there's something you're unsure about uh, in certain in terms of what you've observed as opposed to assuming that you must know best so yeah I think, yeah. yeah that's interesting then shifting the balance to then from the humans and how we speak about the humans involved in these processes to the processes themselves, the approach that is taken in international development towards programs, towards projects. It'd be interesting to touch upon some of the language there that exists uh, and that we use. What I mean by that might be, you know, missions or on the ground or hardship allowance. Yeah, I don't know if any of those... Yeah, no, all of those have definitely make me feel a certain type of way. (laughs) The idea of being on the ground or in the field is, I think, really very fascinating to me. Because people say it all the time that, like, oh, I'm on the ground in Africa. And does that imply that when you go back to, like, Europe or the U.S. that you're somewhere in the air? I mean, I, I think there ha- there is, like, a bit of an ivory tower connotation to that, but it just feels like you're floating um, versus you're, like, you know, on the ground. It also just implies that the place where you're going is just, like, rough and rugged versus very refined from where you are. Um, and there is also, you know, people who are on the ground typically don't earn as much money as people who are not on the ground, and they don't have as much power. They don't, they're not the people who are going to these international conferences. Like, same with in the field. I think, you know, if unless you're doing research on field mice, I don't understand why the idea of like, oh, I'm going to go do some field work now. And it just also, I think, has that similar connotation of just being really, you know, out there and like you just get insights from these like these again, these like one dimensional stock characters. And then you come back and you're able to piece together meaning through it and then take it to places with power and that's not in the field. And I, I just feel like the all of this language around yeah, hardship allowance, field work on the ground, it just implies like who has the power and those aren't the places. And as you mentioned, there's a relevance to in the field 
or field work, but it's a very specific meaning, like in scientific research. It might have a very specific meaning, but it's when we use it in our field of international development in a more general sense that we're adding connotations and we're using it in quite a different sense. Yeah, yeah. And I think it just ends up becoming pejorative to the people who you're going to visit and the places that you're going to go. It just, in some ways, it flattens them, in my opinion, that it just turns everything into like, oh, this is just the field. And as a result, you don't really think about like, is this a place with so much history to it? And is, is this a place that has its own culture and baggage that comes associated with it? And I think the best way to see that, the implications of that, is to contrast it. If you were labeled, if your place, your country, your area was labeled the field, the ground, how does that make one feel? And I think a lot of people would would think, as you say, it simplifies what is, what is a much richer place. You know, I, this is kind of a random example to think about. But if you ever go, if you're like on Instagram and you want to, you can do like a geotag of a post or a story, then one of the po- one of the tags that you can put in is somewhere in Africa. So, you know, you have like a picture of yourself in the Maasai Mara, let's say, and you can just tag it as somewhere in Africa, which just sounds like so exotic and so like, oh, I'm in touch with the people. I don't know who came up with that tag, but it just feels like so emblematic of what we're talking about. The idea that it's not a place that's deserving of, an, of its own name. It's not a place that's deserving of its own uniqueness. It's just somewhere. Absolutely. And I think that is where you see like, you see language as it becomes systemic, take on a very structural form there where like it's it's literally in the form of a tag it's how you categorize yeah like you know when i think about the idea of like if i'm on the ground then i think about i am surrounded by black or brown people who are wearing colorful clothes and it's hot and if i am not on the ground i am somewhere that is cold and i am surrounded by white people and i am surrounded by power (laughs) that's pretty well said and then another one just to touch upon in this case and recognizing that these are just a few examples of the many so there's a quote which I had, yeah, I do really like, which kind of, it goes as such. And it's, uh, it's Dr. Riemann. She writes, helping, fixing, and serving represent three different ways of seeing life. When you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. When you serve, you see life as whole. Fixing and helping may be the work of the ego and service the work of the soul. And what I really like about that is it does shift the narrative from us speaking a lot in terms of helping and fixing. And Marion, in the previous episode, touched on the importance of talking about going there to work. And here, I thought serve and service might be a nice, different way for us to go. Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I do really like this quote. I think it does help you think intentionally about what you're doing and what your purpose is when you go somewhere. When I think of the word serve, I automatically think about missionaries when it comes to the international development context. Um, So I have a book coming out soon called Tread Brightly, Notes on Ethical Travel. And it's a book of essays about uh, helping people think about travel in a more intentional way from a cultural, social, environmental perspective. And one of the chapters that I wrote is about volunteerism or people who go places to volunteer. And the idea of like volunteerism is often also known as service learning. It also is tied up in the idea of serving of the idea of going to another place and serving. And that actually comes very directly from from missionary work. And the difference now is that missions used to be, you know, in the 1600s, 1700s were years long because it 
took so long to get somewhere to now that you have people who are just flying to Haiti for a week to uh, serve a community and they come right back. But it all comes from this idea of like, I have something to offer of service and I am going to go to this place that doesn't have things and I'm going to serve them. And I spoke to for this chapter to some people who wrote a book called Instead of Service Learning to Change It to Learning Service. And instead of going somewhere to serve, to think about your foremost role to be to learn and to think of yourself as an apprentice and to go with the with the idea that I don't have the answers for a place. And my first thing that I need to do when I go somewhere is actually just be there as a student and to really just absorb as much as I can and understand the context of other people's lives. I think also wrapped up in the idea of service is often the idea of like, I am called to serve like people that that's very missionary language of the idea of like, you're called for a specific type of service. And that I think that that intention is so beautiful. And I don't want to take people away from that, because I think that's led people to have really beautiful lives of meaning and, and selflessness. There is also an ego wrapped up in, in that idea, which I think is important to mention that it kind of implies that I'm called to serve. And even if I don't have the skills to do so, my calling is what's most important. And the idea that I have the, I have that inclination within me, that matters most, more than anything else. There was recently the, this whole story that, that blew up about this Ugandan doctor, well, not doctor. Um, her name is Renee Bach and she was an American missionary who had zero medical skills. And, she went to Uganda and actually, you know, performed medicine on Ugandan children and killed over a hundred children in the process, her clinic. And she came from very much that language of like being called to serve. Uh, so I think that it's, I don't know, the, the idea of service, I, I feel like it's, it's complicated because on one hand, it is really beautiful. And I, I don't want people to just just think that, oh, well, I don't have anything to offer. Thus, I'm going to just walk away and live my life of privilege in my bubble and never escape because I can't do anything right. That would be a terrible outcome. And one that I think that the world would be a much worse place if it weren't for people who just, you know, really got up and tried new things. At the same time, I, I do think the idea of the helping, fixing, serving, if maybe there's one step beyond that, that goes from help, fix, serve, and then learn. And you're just there to be be a sponge as much as possible wherever you go. I feel like that would maybe be a really nice, humble place to start, to show up to a new place and go with that intention. If people want to explore this more, your book speaks specifically on this topic. Yeah, I think that the core question of the book is honestly, how do you show up to a place? And a lot of it is when you show up to a place for leisure, but also when you show up to a place for a purpose of study abroad or to volunteer or to live long term. And what is that? What does that look like when you go from one one place that you are very familiar with that you consider home to a place that is not home to you and that is foreign in some way? On this and on the social media, we'll make sure to oh, share thank links you. so people can find out. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure they'll want to. So then on to a third section I thought we might touch upon was the language that's related to impact. And 
generally or touching on a few specifics of the ways in which we describe the work we are doing and what does that reveal in terms of our approach and our thinking in this space? A couple of different thoughts. One is I, I do think that a lot of the how we think about impact needs to end up being cloaked in a lot of the accepted jargon. What would be other examples? Income generating activities, uh, liaising with local stakeholders. And a lot of these are describing processes. Things like capacity building is my favorite, least favorite one. There is a specific definition, but it's also very vague. Helping skill up not just individual people, but like full departments and full institutions to be able to operate at a higher capacity. Um, and there's so many ways to get to it. So you can call so many things that are under development. You can just label it as capacity building. And then it just becomes this thing that everyone is just aspiring towards. And it's really hard to know who's actually doing the real stuff versus who's just using the nice language. And there's so many people who just have become fluent in that language. It, what it ends up doing is it just clouds a lot of activities or a lot of work yeah, into this really vague, unhelpful language. And yet, I'd argue, very helpful language if in these impact reports, in these websites, you are able to still, through the vagueness, there's a degree to which you can use that to appear to be very impactful and have a lot of outputs, whereas it remains very intangible. Yeah, I think there's a there's for sure a lot of examples of organizations or people who are able to just, you know, glom on to these different types of language that make themselves sound a lot more impressive than if you actually boil down to like, well, what have you produced? So yeah, one example that I can give is uh, regarding women empowerment, which I think, you know, if you think about it from like the 60s, had such a strong feminist idea of, you know, empowerment really being like financial empowerment, political empowerment, there's so much wrapped up in the idea of, of gender equity of what women's empowerment really looked like. Over time, I think that it just, it's a bit of a victim of overuse. And a lot of people started thinking about, oh, we're doing a women's empowerment workshop. To the extent that you have, I've seen myself, you know, where you have like a two hour workshop on financial literacy. And at the end of it, um, I remember seeing one picture. I wish I could find this picture. Uh, in rural India, these women holding up a sign that said, you know, I've completed this workshop. It was a two hour workshop. I am now empowered. And it's like, you look at this and I just, I wasn't even sure if these, if these women spoke English and or read English and understood the sign that they were holding up or if they were just told, Hey, hold the sign. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, if you think about the context of their whole lives, yeah, sure. They may have learned, even if the workshop was the best workshop ever and they learned certain financial skills. Are they now financially independent? Are they, are they still living in a patriarchal society? Are they, you know, do they have political power? Do they have other types of power? And the answer is probably no from a two hour workshop. That's not going to teach you all of those things. But people who are working in development are so eager to claim, have these grandiose claims that they'll just make them. Completely. And I think that's the danger. We can have these grandiose claims if we're not held accountable for them. And the whole accountability structure is an entirely separate discussion. If people are having to report to the SEGs or write things that they themselves would not be able to understand, um, there's a mismatch to who you're serving there. 
Absolutely. I mean, you can think about it like with social media. I don't know. I I saw this once before, and I, I feel like it's actually kind of an app metaphor that the social media companies, Facebook, they are taking your data and selling it to so many places. And really your data, you being on Facebook, you're not the end user. You're not, your data is being used to service their end user who are, you're the product. You're the product. And I think that there's, it's really scary. Is like, don't share much on Facebook anymore because once I started thinking of it in this way, it really scared me. And I think that that's actually really true for so many development projects. Is it really being designed for the people in the communities who are trying to help or is it being done for this larger structure in order for the, these organizations who are getting these big grants to get more grants? Who is the product? Who is the product and who is the... That's a really interesting way to think about it. I, say. I yeah. really like that. It's very interesting. A little yeah, scary. A, a, little dy- scary. a little dystopian. <laughs> the Facebook aspect is dystopian. The, it doesn't feel as dystopian in this space to me because it feels very real. <laughs> um, which is sad and I'm quite cynical. But <laughs> it seems like an apt description to some extent in some places like all the caveats in place. I never thought of it in this term, but I think that's a pretty powerful way. What does all of this, be the language of the humans involved, be it of the process and the approach, and be it of the impact, what does that create? I think the important thing to think about with all of this is who's in, who feels included and who feels excluded. And who do we give agency to? Who do we assume has power and who is powerless and who is being acted upon. I think that jargon in general, there are really some positive elements to it. In the international development space, I think there's an added negative element to the to the use of jargon in that it very much defines who is in the group and who is out of the group. And often the people who you are working in service of the communities that you're going to visit and who you are supposedly acting in the benefit of, if they feel excluded from the process and ends up assuming that they don't know the context of their own lives and they're not part of the process to help improve their own lives, it doesn't include them in the process because you're using language that just goes over their heads and that purposely is not about them, then what's the point? Absolutely. And a second tier of it might be also within these organizations in terms of hiring, in terms of staff. Is there an impact there you see as well? Yeah, absolutely. Because you end up hiring people who can speak just like you. And in some cases, you need that. If you're hiring a grant writer who doesn't know what capacity building means, then unfortunately, in the world that we live in, that person's probably not going to win that many grants. Even if they're able to, even if they know intrinsically in their heart the value of their work, if you're not able to speak the language of, of the donors or of the, of the people who you need to impress, then you're not going to get very far. So yeah, you need, I don't know, language, so much of language is, are you being understood by the people who are, who you are speaking to? Are you being understood by your audience? And in some cases, you need that jargon in order to prove you fit in. It's both a necessity, but it's a harmful structure which you have to fit into, but we could also need to force, and maybe we do need to change in the ways in which donors look at grants, look at reports. If this is what it forces and it therefore excludes, 
particularly people who are less versed, who are less familiar, who are likely to be more you know, nationals of a country as opposed to internationals in that space. And I think, you know, you can see this direct funding to local and national groups has declined from 2016 to 2020 from 3.5% to 2.1%. So we're speaking about really small amounts of funding that ends up going to local national level groups. Part of that, I think, is this language, is this kind of jargon that we make it a very important factor. Yeah, I think so much of it, too, is that we're rushing to try to professionalize this space. International development, in many cases, is working at the bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, the really basic food, water, shelter, and people want to make it seem, want to make it seem as professional as possible. And as a result, create all of these structures around it, whether or not they're needed. Thank you so much, Sarika, for spending a lot of time uh, on this conversation. I know many people have found what you've mentioned, many of your ideas are very interesting. You've already mentioned your book. How can people kind of follow up, reach out? And Yeah, I mean, the best way is probably through Twitter. My Twitter is Sarika, my first name, 008, because I'm one better than James Bond, 007. <laughs> and that's my Instagram as well. So I think that's probably the easiest way to reach okay. me. Yeah, and then my, my book is coming out soon called Tread Brightly. And... Yeah, I'm always very interested in any conversations about uh, travel and showing up to places and really how do you arrive in a place with humility. So always up for any conversations. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. And as many of you would have found Sarika's thoughts and her examples really interesting, I'd highly recommend to check out Bright Magazine and a lot of the articles that we've posted on our social media. Also her book, which is coming up, that I'm really excited to read on. The question of how does one travel the world ethically? And I think particularly in a post-COVID world, it's a good time to take pause and reflect before we go back to how we operated beforehand. Following the conversation, I am reflecting about the term expat and local that I use in this podcast and in the introduction. And at the moment, I do think I will keep these terms as such for two reasons. One, because it's a label which is very commonly used in this space, and it therefore is useful to be speaking on similar terms. But secondly, because I really do hope that the ways in which we're using these terms is not with the same connotations. And in fact, if anything, there's a potential for expat to be used in a pejorative sense and local in a more positive light. So I hope that we are at least combating some of the traditional associations with these words. I also found Sarika's Facebook analogy really powerful, and it's something which stuck with me in terms of really considering in this development space, who is the product and who is the customer? And I think that question and the answer we touched upon uh, spoke to a truth that I would like to explore further in future episodes. And lastly, I really hope you enjoyed this discussion. I'm, I'm very curious to hear what you thought, if you agreed, disagreed with some of the examples we discussed, if it caused you to rethink any of your language, and maybe good examples we've missed. Do please share. You can reach me on Instagram at The Development Dilemma, on Twitter at dev underscore dilemma, and email thedevelopmentdilemma at gmail.com. From here on in, I'm hoping to release episodes every two weeks, so do stay tuned and thanks for listening. <laughs>